This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Oh, that is great. Hey, if you're joining us new with us today, uh, we're in a series we've been doing through the book of Acts. If you have a Bible, you can open to Acts chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 9 this morning. And what I'd like to do is jump in. I'm going to read the entire passage to give us sort of a bird's eye view of the narrative landscape that we'll be walking through together this morning. Verse 8 ended, so there was much joy in that city. And if you were here with us last week, you'll remember the gospel is starting to break out of Jerusalem. The church is persecuted and they start to, to move into the surrounding areas. Philip is one of the people we're sort of tracking in the story, and he goes to Samaria. Samaria responds to the gospel in a significant way, and Dr. Luke records, so there was much joy in that city, and that's where we pick up the story. This, uh, this section won't be on the screen If somebody near you has a Bible and you don't lean on with them, if nobody near you has a Bible, look to them and say, you should bring your Bible to church. All right. (laughs) Verse 9, let's roll. says, but there was a man named Simon who'd previously practiced magic or sorcery, some translations will say, in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was someone great. And they all paid attention to him from least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him. For a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Both men and women, even Simon himself, believed. And after Being baptized, he continued with Philip, seeing the signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem, sort of the the home base still of this early church, when they received received the word of God, or they, when they heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord God that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing you've said may come upon me. Verse 25. And now, when they testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, our desire would be to hear you speak your word to us this morning. In, in what is many ways a, a difficult passage. Lord, would you put your finger on the pulse of our heart today? If there's any, any ways that we're, we're off, Lord, 
Would you draw that up to the surface? Would you put your finger on it? Would you give us the grace, to, as the passage invites us to, to repent, to turn to you, and to know you? Spirit, stir. Please use my words. Um, meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. On Friday, uh, I met a group of folks here at the church at 5 a.m., and we uh, drove off to Breckenridge, right outside of Breckenridge, to climb uh, Mount Quandry. I don't know if you've climbed any 14ers before, but I was pretty excited. This is the first one that I've had the chance to do since moving back to Colorado. And so I went and I got my 14ers uh, book out and I opened it up to the Mount Quandry Peak and, and saw that there was a, a three different routes that you can take to the top. Uh, based on the time of year, though, there was really only one route that was acceptable because the other ones were going to be too steep and too snow-packed. And so when we got to the trailhead, I drove past the, the trailhead a number of times. But when we finally found it, where the trail started, where we finally found the trail started, there's this little sign that said, trail, should have been looking for that, my bad. Um, trail started, we started to climb up and we were in the trees for about an hour and then when we got to the ridge that you eventually stay on for the last two miles of the hike up to the peak, I realized why these were the only few routes that were suggested. Um, the other sides were completely snow-packed and Quandry is quite the uh, rocky mountain, if you will, no pun intended, most of them are. And this one was just littered with big boulders, and there was only one, really one path that got up to the top. And as we got up to the top at about 10 o'clock, we, 10.30, we stood there and just surveyed this scene. And as you looked down on either side, it was clear that that path was chosen because it was really the only path that was going to get you there. I mean, regardless of how hard you tried going up some of these other ways, there was no way that you were going to reach the top. There just wasn't. And as we stood up there and as we looked, this passage that we're studying this morning came to mind because I think in many ways, Simon is a, a picture of the potential for you and I. He's a potential of what it looks like to approach God on a, on a wrong path, on a path that, that doesn't get us to where we want to go, on a path that, that regardless of how hard we try and regardless of how much effort we put in, will never land us where we want to end up. And so my goal this morning is to introduce you to a man, to introduce you to a man that I hope will hold up a mirror for us, not of our bodies, but of our hearts, that he'll ask us some difficult questions as we study this text, questions about our heart. See, because in the climactic portion of this passage in verse 21, here's what Peter says to Simon. He says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. And that is in the, in the message of the good news of the gospel and the spirit descending and living in him. You've, you have no part in it. Why? Well, for your heart is not right before God. And, and I think in some ways we should sympathize with Simon. I think in some ways we should take a step back and, and before we start to cast stones at him and, and write him off as the early church fathers did as one of the very first heretics, I think we have to realize that Simon hears the message of the gospel, but he hears it like many of us do with a trailer full of baggage from his past religious experiences, his past life, his pre-Jesus time of living. 
And so he hears the gospel in a way that's tainted by where he's been, by what he's done, by what he's seen, by what he's heard, and by what he's been a part of. And all of that contributes to the way that he hears. It all contributes to the way that he starts to walk this path. I think in some ways his intentions are good. But I think he just starts in the wrong place. I think his approach is just so off that he's unable to recover from it. And so what Peter says to him is, your heart is not right before God. So I want to ask us a difficult question to self-assess today. What's your heart like? What's your heart like before God? A lot of the way we can tell the temperature of our heart is by, and towards God, is by the approach that we take to him. The way that we interact with him. The picture we have in our mind of what we think of when we think about God. I love the way that A.W. Tozer puts it when he says this. What you think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Well, why is that? Because often what we think of, the picture in our mind we have of God, is often what drives us. It's the fuel that gets into the tank of our heart that pushes us in a certain direction. And what we're going to see in Simon is that it has the potential, though well-intentioned, to push us in the completely wrong direction. What Simon thought about when he thought about God was off. When he, when he thought about God, what he thought about was not a true picture. It was false, and it ended up haunting him. I love this quote that I ran across from the great pastor Tim Keller when he, he says this, Satan does not control us with fang marks on the flesh, but with lies in the heart. And this is what we see in Simon. This is what starts to come to the surface as we trace his story. It's what comes to the top. There were lies that he believed and it influenced the way that he approached God, the way that he thought about God, and the way that he chased after God. And I wonder if some of the lies he's believed, he believed have slipped into the core of who we are too. See, here's this big idea that we're going to wrap our hearts and our minds around this morning. It's this, that a right approach to God leads to a right relationship with God. And unfortunately, in the life of Simon, what you're going to see is the negative example of this, that a wrong approach to God, the way that we start to walk that path, the, the trail that we get on, leads to a wrong relationship with God. Because as Peter points out, his heart was off. His heart was cold. His heart was not right before God. See, you know this. You know this, that, that the heart, the, the intentions, the motivations, they matter. If you're married, you know that your spouse can say something to you that's completely on the surface, sounds really good, but you know the heart behind it isn't, and you go, uh-uh, it's not going to work. Right? We need to talk because what you're saying is not what's really going on deep down inside. That's what we see come to the surface in the life of Simon. And I wonder if God might use this passage to draw some of those wrong approaches to the surface of our life this morning as well. So now that we have a, a sort of bird's eye view of this landscape we're going to be walking in today, let me invite you back into the story 
says this. We're going to look at, at, at a few, four to be specific, erroneous approaches to God that often rob us of the joy that he designed us to live in. It says this in verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who, was previously, who had previously practiced magic. Now, just a quick time out. This was not all that uncommon back in the day. To practice magic probably meant that he had some special um, uh, incantation, some special chants that he did, some special apparatus that he used, sometimes a crystal, sometimes it was pretty evil stuff that Simon was probably involved in. And in this city, and he amazed, that's going to be a, a theme, he amazed the people of Samaria. I mean, they were just awestruck by what he did, saying that he himself was someone great. So Simon is elevated. They paid they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now, being modern readers of this text, we have this tendency to just sort of write this off and go, Oh, you silly pre-modern people, you unscientific people. There was really no magic that Simon was doing. There was no real power that was behind the things that he did. It was probably simply sleight of hand. And I, I want to just um, draw to the surface for us this morning that, that that's complete garbage, okay? That, that while there is power for good, there's also power for evil, Okay, and so Simon is a person who's tapped into this evil power and he's used it to gain a name. He's used it to gain a following. He's used it to elevate himself, which was exactly what that power was intended to do. Lift high the name of Simon. And so then he encounters Jesus. He encounters Jesus' messengers and he says to them, he sees them lay on hands, and he says, give me this power also. Give me this power. Give me this, um, literally, energy or dynamite. Give me this power so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive also the Holy Spirit. And we start to get introduced to this approach that Simon takes to God. And his approach is simply this. God, if we could work out a deal where you lift high the name of Simon, I'll be for you. Right? So the song in their church, in Simon's church, would go, Simon is enough for me, right? But, 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 here's a scary thing, friends. If we were to stop and pause long enough to look back on our week, how many of us would go, well, that's the song that's in my head too, and I'll just replace Simon with Ryan, or you can replace it with whoever's in your head. That really, his approach to God is, if you'll give me power, if you'll give me strength, if you'll give me might, if you'll build my name, or, or hey, let's just put it in a less religious way and a more palpable way, if you'll make me happy, well then, then we could work something out. And so from the very beginning, Simon's approach to God is off. Because what you see Philip do is he preaches the good news about the kingdom of God, not the good news about the kingdom of Simon. Right? And just here, newsflash for you. 
it's still about the kingdom of God. And oftentimes when we approach God, the subtlety under what we want is for him to make our name great, to solve our problems, to make us happy, to make everything work out for us. And it's off. From the very beginning, it's off. See, the invitation of the gospel is a kingdom to be embraced rather than a power to be wielded. And what Simon wanted was, give me this power. See, I think we fall into one of two categories. Some of us, we fall into the same category that Simon fell into, where we say, all right, God, we're going to work out a deal, and you make my name great. We may not say it like that, but, but you make me happy. You solve my problems. This is the gospel of happiness, right? If you want to be happy, trust Jesus. Write your name on the card. Pray the prayer. And we do that, and we go, well, that was a lie. I'm still in the same position I was. And he didn't solve all the problems I wanted him to solve. But in reality, our quest is me-centered. The other, I think the other end of that spectrum from God, use your power to make me great is God, there's, you really don't have any power. And God, even though we talk about the kingdom, your reign here, We talk about your love. We talk about the way of Jesus and the way that you're calling us as we sang to make a difference, to be the hope of this world. When it comes down to it, we really don't believe that there's any power in your name. And we have these two spectrums that we have to negotiate. Do you know that the scriptures say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, that one of the signs of people who aren't walking with Jesus is that they have a form of godliness. They talk about God a lot, but they deny its power. I wonder which side we fall on. And as we talk about an approach to God, the question we have to wrestle with is what does it look like to use the power of God, to allow God to use his power in and through us for his purposes? See, kingdom people, they long for the kingdom of Jesus, not the kingdom of fill in your name. What do you long for? What keeps us up at night? What do we dream, what do we dream for? Is it, is it the name of Jesus that he would be lifted high? Or maybe have we started where Simon started? God, this is about me, and if you get on my agenda, and if you follow my plan, and if you do what I want, well then, we're good. We're good. He goes on, and his story continues. And it says, even Simon himself believed. Now, just a quick time out. Um, If you were to go pick up 20 commentaries from Denver Seminary on the book of Acts and read this verse in this chapter, you would have 20 different opinions on what actually happened in Simon's heart. Whether he really actually believed the gospel and was starting to be transformed by it, whether he believed and that seed was sort of snuffed out early on by the desires of the world, or whether he was a false believer. Um, I'm going to sort of put that off to the side for a second because I think Dr. Luke is intentionally ambiguous in inviting us into this fog, okay? Because in many ways, the story, while it's about Simon, it's a reflection to us, too, to ask questions about our own life. 
And if we start to get too nitty-gritty and pin Simon down and say he was or he wasn't this, maybe we miss the real point of what Dr. Luke invites us to. So he says this, even Simon himself believed whatever that meant for Simon. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, this is the picture Luke paints of Simon being attached to the leg of Philip. Wherever Philip went, Simon was there, okay? So Philip goes to relieve himself. Simon's like, hey, how you doing, buddy? Okay, he goes home, he goes to sleep at night, he wakes up, you know, if you're a parent, you have this happen to you sometimes, you wake up, your kid's right there, hey, how's it going? Dear Lord, you know? Okay, this is the picture that Luke is painting of Simon. He's attached to Philip. Seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Literally, he's overwhelmed. He's awestruck. He knows what he can do with the power that he has. And then he sees what Philip can do. And he goes, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by that. I think a lot of times we, we, we see people throughout the Gospels who are amazed by the, by the words of Jesus. We see people who are amazed by the actions of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. We see people are amazed by the way that he lived, and they're essentially onlookers that go, oh, yeah, unreal. And maybe they, too, miss the point. Maybe the point isn't so much that we're amazed, although he is amazing. Maybe it's possible to be amazed and to miss the true point that God invites us to encounter. Let me put it like this. I, I think um, a number of us will go out later on this week, this Friday, and we'll lay out our blankets and we'll sit with friends and we'll sit with family and we'll look up as the sky is just ignited with fireworks, won't we? Hey, who's going to watch fireworks? Okay, a number of you, great. Um, it's an American thing to do. So, um, And so we'll put out our blankets and we'll get in our chairs and we'll sit there and it'll start to get dark. And finally, that first firework will shoot off and everybody around you will do what? Ooh, right? And then another one and they'll go, ah, right? And and so we do this dance, right? Ooh, ah, until the grand finale. And then at the grand finale, it's, yeah, oh yeah, unbelievable, right? And then show's over. We pack up our blanket, we walk back to our car, we shut the door, and we go, that was great. We should do it again in 365 days. Right? Unbelievable. Awesome. Amazing. Amazing. It doesn't do anything inside of us. And you see, here's this approach that Simon starts to walk down with God. He's absolutely shocked, he's dumbfounded, he's floored by the experience. But he doesn't engage the person. And you see, a lot of us, we we may start to walk down that road. Jesus, I like the way you make me feel, and I like the things you do. And Jesus goes, oh, that's great, that's great. But, but, But may those lead you to me, they're not the end game. They're not the end game. The way I make you feel isn't the end game. The things I do for you isn't the, that's not the end game. 
I think what Jesus would say to Simon, what he'd say to you and me this morning is, I'm the end game. Like, come on, keep coming. May those draw you, but may they never be the end. And what we see is that this right approach to God is defined by Jesus being a person to know, to be known rather than an experience to be had. See, the haunting thing about Simon is that what happened in Simon has a potential to happen in every single one of us. We just mask it way more subtly. We're way better at the game than Simon is. I think in the same way Simon had picked his favorite experience of God and elevated that over God himself, we do some of the same things. See, if you were honest, my guess is you could probably trace back to a time in your life where you were just absolutely floored by who Jesus was. By the grace that he'd showered down on you of no merit, because of no merit of your own, nothing was in you, but you were just absolutely captured by the fact that he would come to you and say, I'll never leave you, forsake you. I love you. Nothing will separate you from my love. I've spoken a good word over you. I've blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And you would just look at him and go, uh, you're, you're enough, as we sang. And something happens to us, though as we start to get involved in church, and as we start to get to know Jesus better and better, and as he's ridiculously good to us, we start to look at that goodness and go, well, that's really the end game. That's really what it's all about. And so even when we talk about worship, we talk about things like, well, the music was either too loud or it was too soft. And... Uh, Man, that, the horn was amazing, or I didn't like the horn. Or we didn't sing enough old songs, or we sang too many new songs. Or, I mean, we, we can go on and on, but what we're saying is the feeling of worship was way more important than the object of worship. And we've, we turn into Simon. We start to go, Lord, amaze me. Uh, um, do something great. And he says, well, well, just come and know me. Be known by me. See, spiritual experiences, quote, unquote, all throughout the scriptures are meant to point us to the God behind the experience, never to terminate in the experience itself. And Simon gets caught up in this, this amazement, this firework mentality, and he's not transformed. And he doesn't encounter the living God. He sees what he does, but he misses the point that God is saying to Simon, come on, Simon, I love you. I'm enough for you. And Simon goes, I love the stuff you do, but I'm not willing to lay my life down for it. What's your approach to God like? Is it maybe similar Maybe similar. He goes on, Dr. Luke does, in recording this movement of the early church into Samaria, and he writes this. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now, now here's what. They send them Peter and John because they're shocked. Right? Word travels back to Jerusalem, the hub, the mothership, and they go, wait, 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 wait. I could have sworn he said Samar Samaritans. And they're like, yes, yeah, Samaritans. No, no way. 
So you know the early church is shocked because they send the A team to go down and to report back and to check it out. And that's exactly what happens. When they came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to do a little bit of explanation here. At the beginning of our series in the book of Acts, I said, we're gonna encounter some things in the book of Acts that are prescriptive. By that, we mean like a prescription that God would write to us and say, here, do this. And we're also gonna encounter some things that are descriptive. This happened. Not necessarily normative, doesn't necessarily always happen, but it happened. I would put this event under the descriptive category. It happened. And here's why I do that. Because the rest of scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit indwells the believer at the time of faith. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In fact, I think I have that. Let's read this. It says this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So when you heard, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, whom is the guarantee of our inheritance until the day we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory, yes and amen. Now, Scripture is consistent with that. This doesn't happen that way. Why, why is that? Well, there's something bigger going on here. There's two reasons I want to propose to you that the Holy Spirit comes as the apostles lay hands on it. And this happens a few times in the book of Acts, but you can never find a time in Scripture that the Holy Spirit comes upon a person through the laying on of hands other than the hands of the apostles, Paul included. So, why? One, for the apostles. When they come down and when they lay their hands on these people, men and women who believed and were baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends on them, their mindset shifts. Maybe they replay in their minds Acts chapter one, verse eight, where Jesus says, and you will be my Holy Spirit, the Spirit will come on you and will empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And maybe, just maybe, it triggers and they go, wow, God, you're, you're working And not only that, but this is not a religion, this is not a belief system that's bound to Jerusalem and that's bound to Jewish people only. It's not bound to good boys and good girls who grow up in Christian homes. That's not not who it's bound to. When the apostles lay hands on the Samaritans, they're seeing a picture of the grace and goodness of God that he's for all people everywhere of all time. And they needed that picture. You know who else needed it? Samaritans. Because for a thousand years, they'd been at odds with the Jewish people. Uh, They were seen as traitors, both ethnically and theologically. 400 years before this event, they'd built their own temple on Mount Gerizim and said to the temple in Jerusalem, Jews, you can have that one. We have our own place of worship. And there was a schism that happened, and they were divided. And when the apostles lay hands on the Samaritans, they're once again united under the cornerstone, the name, the person, the work of Jesus. They see we're part of one big church, not just one little movement. And this happened at this time, I'm convinced, because in order for the church to go forward in the way that it does, with the unity that it does, it was absolutely necessary. 
verse 20 continues like this. After Simon offers to buy the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Obtain the gift. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Sort of like the uh, rich ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a weird question. What do, what do, I, what do I do to inherit? Well, you inherit something by being part of a family. You don't do anything. Sort of like trying to obtain a gift. You simply receive a gift. You don't buy it. If it really truly is a gift. And what we see in Simon's heart is what starts to come to the surface and that he views God as this commodity to be purchased rather than a gift to be received. And you see, if we're gonna approach God rightly, not only do we need to know whose kingdom this is about and not only do we need to know that he's designed us for relationship with him, but this whole thing that we call Christianity It's founded on gift. It's founded on grace. You can't purchase it. You can't earn it. You could never be good enough. You don't have enough money in the bank in order to get it. Simon missed it. I wonder if what was in Simon's mind is what's often in our mind. See, we have a different currency at least in modern evangelicalism. We're not gonna say, hey God, I'm gonna take out my wallet and I wanna buy your Holy Spirit. We probably won't say that. And it's easy to write Simon off because we don't. But we have these erroneous thoughts in our mind that say the same thing about our approach to God. Here's some of the things I've thought of in my own mind over this last week. God, you'll bless me if I'm a good boy. So here's my money, God. Here's my money. I'm gonna perform. I'm gonna perform really well. And when I do, you'll bless me. And so we enter into this sort of exchange. That's what Simon wants to do. We enter into this exchange. God, if I give you this, then the deal is you give me that. And it's a formula. God's turned into a commodity. And his goal, in our mind, is make us happy, be enough. We want to earn his blessing through our, our, through our obedience. We long to earn his love through our devotion. A lot of this happens because of the family we grow up in and the way that our parents love us. And we impose that on God. And we say, all right, God, my, my, what, what my experience tells me is that when I perform well and I do right, then you love me. But if I don't, well, then you're just at an arm's distance. And so our currency is, God, we're we're devoted. So cough it up. And for just like Simon, our end game becomes something other than God. Or how about, we can try this one on. I aim to be an equal opportunity offender. Hey, God, if I give you X amount of money, then I know you're gonna bless my finances. I'm gonna sow my seed. And God, then you're gonna multiply it. How many percentage? Well, just fill in the blank, whatever you want. And we play this game with God. And he says, it was, it's not about me being a commodity. 
It's not about what you get from me. It's the gift that I give to you by the grace and mercy of Jesus. That's what Christianity is about. It's no longer an exchange, okay? The exchange has already been made. The exchange was made on the cross, okay? And, and the exchange was we traded our sinfulness for his holiness, it's the, the, the reformers call it the great exchange in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, period. Signed, sealed, delivered. You enter into it by faith in Jesus. It's the only exchange in the new covenant you ever need to make. He's not a commodity to be purchased. You have every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Every one. He didn't leave a single out. Simon's unable to actually enjoy who Jesus is because he thinks there's still something left to be purchased. And he misses that Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. I have a ton of other stuff I was going to cover, but I'm, I'm not anymore. So here, here's, here's sort of where we're at, big picture. These approaches to God. One, we often approach God to, to get power from him instead of his kingdom. Two, we approach God because we're amazed by the experience we have rather than the person that's behind it, the object of our worship. Three, we approach God to try to get something from him instead of receiving what he's already given us in Jesus. And then there's this really inter- interesting exchange at the very end, starting in verse 22. Peter says, Repent, therefore, which we'll talk about in a second, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Verse 24. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Notice this um, invitation from Peter. Pray. Pray. Ask God. And Simon's response is, I could never do that. Pray for me. Pray for me. Because there's no, God, God's not going to listen to me. I mean, we, you, you know, the, the trailer full of evilness and garbage I've been a part of? You think God would hear me? Peter's going, yeah, I do. Pray. Don't we often get caught up in this trap of feeling like God is ultra religious? That sounds sort of funny, doesn't it? But where if we say it the right way, he hears it. And if we have the right formula, then he executes it. And if we don't say it the right way, well, then there's no way he could ever possibly hear. And so his approach to God is I've got to have the right formula and I've got to do the right equation. And if I plug in the right variables, then the right thing pops out. And Peter, you know the right word, so you pray him. I could never pray. God would never hear me. Anybody else play that game? And what we see in a right response, a right approach to God is that by the grace and blood of Jesus, he invites us to a direct encounter with him rather than a theoretical religious exchange. As I said before, this passage is really built around verse 21. In it, Peter says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart, your your approach, your affections aren't right before God. Repent. Therefore, isn't it interesting how you say a word can really define how you mean it? I mean, let's read it a few different ways. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Or, 
Simon, your heart is not right before God. Repent. Repent of your evil. Repent of your wickedness. Turn. Come home. It's interesting to me, if you read this passage, I think it reiterates what we talked about a few weeks ago, that in the scriptures, repent is followed by believe. Repent and believe, not repent and behave. So here's what Peter says, Simon, you have a heart problem, so repent. Not Simon, you have a behavior problem, not Simon, you have a morality problem, but Simon, something's going on in your soul, repent, change the way that you think. I love the way the Dallas Willard puts this in closing. He says, repentance is not a beating your head against the floor or a feeling bad about your sins. It's to rethink your thinking. Uh, Maybe you could even say repentance is rethinking your approach. What trail you're on, where it's getting you. Is it based around grace or is it based around work? Is it based around you or is it based around God? Is it based around a person, an invitation, or is it based around experience? Repent. Rethink your thinking so as to change the way you've been thinking and acting. He writes, we repent in light of the gospel, good news of Jesus. And so friends, Peter's invitation to Simon is the same invitation he gives us today. I mentioned previously that I think that the story ends rather ambiguously, intentionally. That we can go to a lot of history, church history, and try to find out what happened to Simon, but the reality is, is we have no clue the way that Simon responded. And I think the reason that there's, we have no clue is that the story's intentionally left open to ask us the same question. To ask us the question, are we willing to examine our hearts? Are we willing to examine our approach? Are we willing to examine the trail that we're walking on to see if it's centered on the gospel, on the good news of what Jesus has done, on the exchange that was made on the cross on our behalf that we step into by faith, or are we walking an entirely different road, an entirely different approach with a completely different end? I think his story ends ambiguously to ask us the same question. What's our approach? How are we interacting with this God who says, I've paid it all through the blood of Jesus. I'm building my kingdom. I'd love for you to be a part of it. Yeah, you'll see and experience great things, but don't mistake them for the thing. His name is Jesus. And you can't earn and you can't purchase and you don't have enough money in your bank account or enough good deeds left to do in order to purchase your redemption. Jesus has already done that. He's sufficient. He's enough. And if you're thinking any other way than that, God's invitation is to repent. That beautiful, wonderful word. To repent and to find joy in approaching him rightly. Would you stand with me as we close our time together in prayer. So before you go rushing out to the picnic, because I know you're all going, 
I just want to give you a moment, a pause, to hold that mirror up to your heart, to your soul. Let me just guide you to ask a few questions. Spirit, would you stir in us? Is there, is there anything in us that longs to build our name instead of yours? And maybe it's revealed in ways we've lashed out at people this week when we didn't get our way. Things we've gotten angry about or disappointed over. Would you just put your finger on that, Lord, and, and stir us a little bit? Is there any way that we've elevated things over you, even the experience of your goodness, receiving your goodness? Have we elevated that to a place of deity in our life? Would you put your finger on it? Lord, if there's any way we're trying to earn your favor, your blessing, other than simply being a child of yours by faith in your perfect son, Jesus, would you draw that out? Lord, if there's a conviction in us that because of who we are and because of what you, you, we've done, you may not hear us, would you remind us of the gospel? Point us to Jesus, please. So Lord, today we, we repent. We change the way that we're Thinking, We think about the way we're thinking and believing. And we want to approach you in the way that you've designed for us to, by the grace and mercy of Jesus. Grace and mercy of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We love you. It's in his and Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. South Fellowship Church, we love you. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.